0: Welcome one and all to the second night of our class how to get the most out of your bible and everybody should have a notebook now because we have plenty more printed since we ran out last week my apologies again to those of you who did not get a notebook last week everybody have notes for tonight and if you need a notebook you can go to the registration table out in the hallway they'll get one to you and anybody need a pen we got some pens over here. All right, we are in section one of, actually the introduction, before we get to section one, but this course has three sections. There are three tabs in the notebook that you have, and on the front cover, it tells you what those three sections are, survey of the Bible, interpreting the Bible, and then applying the Bible. That are the three things we're going to be looking at in the two semesters that we have together. So now through mid-December, and then we'll pick up again in January, and we'll go through the first week of May. So uh, now through the first week of May, we'll be covering those three things, and most of our time is going to be on the first of those three, a survey of the Bible. But before we even get to the survey, you have before tab one, you have an introduction uh, to what a survey of the Bible is. Most of you were able to be here for the first week last week. Some of you were not. So I will just uh, literally in just a few minutes uh, go over what we covered beginning on page one. So if you have in your notebook there the very first page at the top where it says section one survey of the Bible. And at the top there we just uh, mention what is entailed in this uh, survey of the Bible uh, a course, how to get the most out of your Bible. Uh, we talk about why you should... Take the time and many months in our case to do this survey of the Bible. God has taken pains to give us His Word, so we need to uh, make sure that we do the work of understanding what uh, its contents are and aligning our lives with those contents. But then in the middle of page one, we asked the question, What has God done to give us the Bible? And we looked at the fact that the Bible is inspired. That means, as we saw last week, that the Bible has its source in God. The Bible came. From, from God. And you've got passages throughout the Bible, in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, that tell us about that. And then if you look on page two, the Bible is not only inspired, but the Bible, because it came from God, because source sources God, then a corollary of that is that the Bible is without error. In order for the Bible to have error and at the same time have come from God, that means that God is capable of making errors or that God could even lie to us. And with the character of God, that's impossible. And so it follows from the fact that the Bible came from God, that the Bible doesn't have any errors. And then middle, very middle of page 2, not only is the Bible without error, but the Bible has full authority. We say there that the Scripture is infallible. And by that we mean that not only is what it says without error, but that what it says has full authority over everyone it addresses. And I said last week that I could say things, you could say things that are without error. But that doesn't mean I have any authority over you for you to follow what it is that I've said. But God has both of those. He has said what he has said perfectly without error. But he has full authority to say and command and dictate because he's God. And then we left off with point D on page 2. The Scripture is not only inspired and inerrant, and it has full authority, that is, it's infallible, but the Scripture is preserved. And you see some passages there that talk about this preservation of, of the Bible. In Matthew 5.18, we saw last week, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then just below that, we have the King James Version of that same verse. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law to all be satisfied. So in the more modern version, the uh, New International Version, the first one that we have there for you, it says, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen, and then in the King James Version, it says, Not a jot nor a tittle. And if you were with us last week, we explained why that is. That uh, a jot is uh, a yod, that is the smallest letter in in the Hebrew alphabet. And that's what Jesus is referring to. Not even the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet will pass away. And that smallest letter, a yod, looks just like a, a comma that, that we would make. That's how small it is. And then that least stroke of a pen is called a tittle and that separates two hebrew letters that look exactly alike except for one of them has this little extension in the corner of it and that distinguishes it from that other hebrew letter so when jesus says this then not the smallest letter least stroke of a pen not a a yod nor a tittle that separates one letter from another he's saying that the preservation of god's word is deep uh, indeed now We left off with that next passage that you have on page 2, Luke chapter 24. Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, Jesus says everything must be fulfilled, and he gives these three categories. And I pointed out to you last week that the reason he gives these three categories is because the Bible that Jesus had at the time he spoke that. Remember, Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, we didn't have the second part of your Bible. The, the coming of Jesus and the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus began the second part of your Bible, the New Testament. So what he had at the time he spoke those words was the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And he says everything must be fulfilled that's written in what we know as the Old Testament but in these three categories, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And the reason he says that is because uh, an Orthodox Jew with his Old Testament, the first part of his Bible, divides that Old Testament into these three categories, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And the largest book and the first book in that section called the Writings is the Psalms. And that's why it's sometimes called the writings, sometimes called the Psalms. Now, what's important for you and for me is this, that when Jesus said that 2,000 years ago, that the Word of God is comprised of the books that fit into these three categories, Law, Prophets, and, and Writings, or Psalms, that the same 39 books that you have in your Old Testament, are the same 39 books that are in those three categories, Law, Prophets, and Psalms. So Jesus was, in effect, verifying the parameters of the first part of the Bible, that it includes these these 39 books. Now, here's why that would be important. It's important because uh, before the time of Jesus, before 2,000 years ago, in fact, during a 400-year period, B.C., before Christ, there were other books written that are not part of your Old Testament, but some claim should be. So if you're familiar with a Roman Catholic Bible, a Roman Catholic Bible has a portion called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha consists of seven additional books books, seven more than the 39 that are in your Old Testament, and that are in the three sections that Jesus mentioned, Law, Prophets, and Writings. These other seven don't fit into any of those three. So Jesus makes another statement that we're going to see in a moment that further clarifies the extent of what books were to be included in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And we'll see in a moment that they don't include these seven extra books. Now, the seven extra books were written during this 400-year period from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New. So you've got 400 years where there were no additional books of the Bible that were written. Now, there was other stuff written, right? But they weren't books of the Bible that were being written. So why does Roman Catholicism say that these books are to be included and considered as inspired. Well, let me, let me tell you when the Roman Catholic Church uh, declared that. Uh, there was a council, a Roman Catholic ecumenical council. An ecumenical council is a council that covers the entire church. So uh, uh, decrees that come down from an ecumenical council cover the entire, the entire church. And there was an ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, uh, that is the 1500s. And it met from 1546 to 1563. 17 years. Now, it didn't meet continuously for 17 years. It met on and off. But the council is called the Council of Trent. T-R-E-N-T. Council of Trent. Trent. So if you were to do a Google on the Trent, the Council of Trent, you could read all about it. And it's 17 years and the decrees that came down from the Council of Trent. Now, does anybody remember your church history a little bit? So that you know some things that were going on around the time of the Council of Trent. In the year 1517, 1517. In fact, we will celebrate the anniversary of what happened in the year 1517 next month on Halloween. October 31st of 1570 is the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 grievances, 95 theses, to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And this was Martin Luther's complaint, his grievances against the church, that sparked what's known historically as the Protestant Reformation. So Protestant protest. So it was a protest. You know, Luther was a protestant. Those who were part of the Reformation were protesting what the church was teaching, what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. And that protest focused on the means of salvation, how someone has a relationship with God. That was the focus. In fact, most of the 95 grievances focused on a practice in the Roman Catholic Church called indulgences, and in particular the sale of indulgences in order for people to be released from purgatory, and that was going on throughout Europe, it was in particular going on at that moment in Germany because you had a an indulgence salesman, and I'm not making that up, a, guys who hawked and sold indulgences. And Johann Tetzel was a very successful indulgence salesman. And he was selling indulgences in Germany, and Luther had finally had it. And so he nailed these 95 theses to the wall, uh, to the door, at the church there. Tetzel had this uh, this little ditty that he would say when he was selling these. And it was, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. (laughs) And so they sold these pieces of paper that people gave money in order to get loved ones released from purgatory. In fact, uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, so that's the porch, you know, where you see the Pope and he'll be out having mass, and there'll be all these people. That was built largely from money from the sale of indulgences (laughs) in Europe. So this was a practice, a very obviously corrupt practice, and Luther protested that, but it was connected to a whole system of how it is that one establishes a relationship with God. Is it through the sacraments that are decreed and controlled by the church, Or is it through, as Luther claimed, and we believe the Bible teaches, through faith alone? And so that became the Protestant Reformation. started and sparked October 31, 1517. In the years after that, others then joined Luther in this protest. People like John Calvin. People like Ulrich Zwingli and others. And so the Reformation, the reform of the church, spread throughout Europe. The Roman Catholic Church then had what is known historically as the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation, that is, their response to the Reformation. They're countering what Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the others are doing. And part of the Counter-Reformation was the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent. 1546, this council is convened. And if you were to read the decrees of the Council of Trent, they are all about refuting the things that the Reformers are saying. And so there are these anathemas. Anathema means let the person who says this be accursed. Let them be anathema. If they say things like, one is justified before God by faith alone apart from works. If anyone says that, says the Council of Trent, let him or her be accursed damned let them be anathema so it's a very serious serious stuff and as one part of the decrees of the council of trent they talked about the books included in the bible and they explicitly rejected the protestant canon of the bible the protestant collection of books in the old testament and said that these seven books so 46 would be the old testament not 39 And if anyone says that the Old Testament does not consist of these 46 books, let him be anathema. But here's the thing. It seems like Jesus said that. So Jesus would fit under the anathema. Because he didn't recognize these extra seven books either. Now, how do I know that? Look at Luke 11.51. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is doing what you find him doing often in his earthly ministry. He is being opposed by the religious leaders, and he is speaking very frankly and very directly to them, and he says to them that you, religious leaders, are guilty of the blood of all of the prophets who have preceded me. He knows that they hate him. He knows that they want to kill him. Ultimately, they will conspire and do that, right? He knows that, and he says, you're guilty of all the blood of all of the prophets that have preceded me. From, and see it on your page there, you're guilty of the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, when Jesus says that, it's interesting that he picks these two guys. You're guilty of the blood of all the prophets. In particular, I want to point out these two, Abel and Zechariah. Now, what's special about Abel and Zechariah? Well, Abel is the first first murder in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. And that occurs in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And then you've got this more obscure prophet named Zechariah. And this is not the Zechariah of the book of Zechariah in your Old Testament. It's a different Zechariah so you have you have the blood of Zechariah and it's not recorded in the first book Genesis it's actually recorded in the book of second chronicles second chronicles now if you had if you have a table of contents <coughs> which you have in the front of your Bible so I'm not going to ask anybody you know do you have all the 39 books of your Old Testament memorized in order but that would be a cool thing for you to do and by the time we're done with this class you might, you might actually have that. But uh, it starts, of course, with Genesis. But that table of contents would have as the 39th book Malachi, not Second Chronicles. But Jesus says from the blood of Abel in the first book to the blood of Zechariah in Second Chronicles. Why? Because the Jewish arrangement of the same 39 books is arranged differently. It starts with Genesis, but it doesn't end with Malachi. It ends with Second Chronicles. So the Old Testament that Jesus had had the same 39 books that fit into those three categories law, prophets, and writings that we talked about from Luke 24. But the ordering of the books is different. It starts with the same book, Genesis, but ends with 2 Chronicles. So Jesus is saying then here, you're guilty of the blood of all the prophets from the beginning to the end. Now, when he says to the end, he's ending with that 39th book. Even though Jesus had available to him, now this is important, the other seven, those other seven had already been written. In fact, those other seven were already circulating. But they're not part of the end. He doesn't say from the blood of Abel at the beginning in Genesis, to the blood of then somebody in the book of Tobit. That's one of the seven. Or the book of Wisdom. Or the book of 1st or 2nd Maccabees. These are the books that are in these other seven. No, it ends with the last book of the 39, not the 46. So when the Council of Trent says, if anyone says that the Old Testament consists of only 66 books rather than 73, let him be anathema, it appears that Jesus himself would actually fall under that anathema. Scripture then has been preserved. And we have Jesus himself, none other than God, come as man, giving witness to the fact that when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, the parameters of the first part of your Bible were precisely what God intended to have and what you have today. 39 books, starting with Genesis and in the Protestant arrangement, ending with Malachi. All right, bottom of page two. The scriptures are preserved as seen in these statements by Jesus, but also you see it in this statement by Peter in Peter, 2 Peter 3.16. He says, Our dear brother Paul, Wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. Now, before you move on and turn the page, let's finish that one, that passage. I want you to see what Peter is saying about the letters of Paul. Notice he calls the letters of Paul scripture. Because in that passage it says he writes things that are hard to understand. People distort the things that he writes as they do the other scriptures. So he's equating what Paul wrote with other scriptures. Now, remember, Scripture is an important term in the Bible. It's this Greek word I told you about last week, graphe, the writings. And you find it in the most well-known passage in the Bible about the Bible that we saw back on page 2. No, page 1. Going all the way back to page 1. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. So scripture is a technical term for the authoritative writings that have come from God. And here Peter is saying Paul's letters are authoritative writings that have come from God. Now here's why I bring this up. How does Peter know this? How does Peter know that the letters that Paul is writing are to be equated with the stuff that's already been written centuries earlier? In the first part of the Bible, that are called the Scriptures. Authoritative writings that have come from God. How does Peter know this? Was there a council that met? That said, we think Paul's writings should be included. Was there anybody who met to determine that? You know the answer to that is no. In fact, Peter's writing this in the first century as a contemporary with Paul. So there's no time for a council to have met. So, contrary to what you will sometimes hear, particularly from Roman Catholics, they will say that, look, your highest authority is not the Bible. They will say that. Your highest authority is not the Bible. And here's one reason you know that your highest authority is not the Bible. Because you wouldn't have the Bible if it wasn't for the church because the church determined which books would be in the Bible. That's what they said. And then they will point to a council centuries later that met to talk about the parameters of the Bible. Now, many centuries later, the Council of Trent would add these seven, these seven additional books. But in Roman Catholicism, the final authority is not the scriptures, but rather the church. And the church and its sacraments tell you how you have a relationship with God. And also, according to Roman Catholicism, they define the parameters of the books in the Bible. But the problem with that is, how did Peter know this? There was no council. There had been nobody making that determination. And so how is it? I'm glad you asked. So here's the deal. Um, Jesus pre-authenticated the writings of the apostles. Jesus pre-authenticated the writings of the apostles. Now, what does that mean, pre-authenticated? Pre means prior. And Jesus vouched for the authenticity of what the apostles would write before they wrote. Now, how did he do that? well in John book of John chapters 14 through 16 John 14 through 16 John 14 through 16 Jesus is speaking remember he's on earth 2000 years ago and he's speaking in John 14 15 and 16 the night before he's crucified and he's preparing his first followers the apostles Four were the events that are going to happen the next day. Now he's been doing that. And they've been dense through the whole thing. And particularly Peter. Is saying. You can't go to Jerusalem and be killed. And he says this. In Matthew 16. To Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me. You remember. Get behind me safe. Well. Here's Peter. Just a few verses prior, he's been called the rock upon which I will build my church. Now he's Satan. Okay. But the reason Jesus says that in such strong language is because it is indeed a satanic attempt to keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission for which he came. He came to die and he was marching inexorably toward that appointment with death. And nothing would stop him. And so Jesus is now, he's tried to prepare them, he's now preparing them intensely the night before he's crucified. And he says to them at the beginning of John 14, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, are many rooms and if it were not so I would have told you he says I'm going now to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also so that's how he starts out trying to calm their troubled hearts and then in chapter 14 he introduces them to the fact that he's going to send someone else and someone else is going to be he identifies as the Holy Spirit Another comforter, he calls. Another counselor, Jesus says. This other one who is going to come is going to be like me. He's going to be like me in that we're both God. But God the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he is going to, and now I'm quoting, he is going to guide you into all truth. Now let me just stop there. You know, if if you were preaching that passage, would you preach that passage that God guides everybody in the congregation into all truth? I would warn you against that. Because this is a special ministry I'm going to point out for you that Jesus gave to the apostles. He's going to guide them into all truth. He goes on to say. As he teaches about what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Quoting again. He will bring everything to your remembrance. That I have commanded. You. Now in case you were wondering. Eh, yeah. You know. God guides me into all truth. Just like the apostles. Me and the apostles are talking. In case you thought that applied. In case you thought that applied to you. Like it applies to them. How about this. Remembering everything. Okay. Do you forget stuff? Do you forget stuff in the Bible? I already know the answer to this. Now why do these guys have to have perfect recall? Because when Jesus is saying this the night before he dies in 33 AD, these guys are later going to write down the stuff that he said. And they're going to need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring to their remembrance everything that I've commanded you. So Jesus pre-authenticates the authority of these guys to write down accurately the things that he he has said. Now, how do you know that these are special guys? One, they were there. And Jesus says to them, you're going to have this special ministry of the holy spirit guiding you into all truth bringing to your remembrance everything that i've commanded you but further remember what these guys are called i mean they're called the disciples we say the 12 disciples i always try to say the 12 apostles rather than the 12 disciples the reason is every apostle is a disciple but not every disciple is an apostle You're a disciple I'm a disciple But there ain't no apostles here The apostles were a special group That's why they're called the twelve If you're in a group called the twelve The Bible sometimes just refers to them as that The twelve I mean, I've, I've got a book on my shelf About the supreme court It's called the nine That's a special group, right? They're the twelve. And then after Judas betrays Jesus, guess what the Bible calls them? The eleven. And then in Acts chapter 1, they immediately go about choosing one to take his place. And they become the twelve again. So this is a special group he will guide you into all truth. He'll bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you. They're called the twelve, the eleven, then the twelve again. And then, in case you needed any more proof, let me give you a little more. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Ephesians 2.20, Ephesians 2.20, the Bible says this, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Well, they were first. They were given this ability to establish the church. That's exactly what they did. That's why Dr. Combs is, as I speak, on the other side of that wall, teaching a class through a book called The Acts of the Who? The Apostles. The Apostles. Now, we just refer to it as the Book of Acts, but the full title is The Acts of the Apostles. Because it's the actions, the activities of those guys that Jesus gave this... Mission to establish the church and this ability to. The church, Ephesians 2.20, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then you go to the very last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 21, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he's given a vision of things to come by God. And he's given a vision of the future city, the new Jerusalem. And in chapter 21 of Revelation, he's given the dimensions of the city. How high the walls are, all of that. And then it says this in verse 14, Revelation 21 and verse 14. On the foundation of the city, there are twelve sides, on which are written the names Of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Those guys. Now to be one of those guys, man, you're like, okay? So not only were they the twelve when they walked the earth, they got their names on the foundation in the heavenly city. So, you're not an apostle, I'm not an apostle. The guy on TV who calls himself an apostle is not an apostle. Those guys are the apostles. And Jesus pre-authenticated, commissioning them to found the church and write what became our New Testament. Now Paul, how does Paul get to fit in here? Um, Paul knew that he was tagging along, as it were, with the 12. How do I know that? Because In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. It's called the resurrection chapter. So all 58 verses of that long chapter are all about the resurrection. And at the very beginning of that chapter, Paul who wrote it says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I proclaim to you. And I gave it to you as of first importance that Christ Jesus died according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised according to the scriptures. And now this whole chapter is going to be about the fact that not only did he raise, we who are in Christ are going to raise as well, but we only know we're going to raise if you're absolutely certain that he raised And so he spends a bunch of time talking about the fact that Jesus really did honestly, historically, bodily rise from the grave. And so he starts to say, and when he rose, he was seen of, and he talks about the people who saw him. And he was seen, guess by who? The twelve. And then he says, last of all, he was seen by me. Now where was he seen by me, Paul? Acts chapter 9 In your Bible Saul of Tarsus is on his way To kill Christians And Jesus meets him on the road And he sees The risen Lord And he's converted And Paul Sees the risen Lord And he says Last of all He was seen by me, and then Paul says this about himself as one abnormally born. Or in the NIV it says, as one born out of due season. So, why does he say that? Abnormally born. What he's saying is, I didn't come to this at the same time the other guys did, I came later. I came out of due season. They all were the apostles at the beginning. I'm an apostle later, but nevertheless, I've seen the risen Lord, and I'm an apostle, as they are. And last, to prove that the apostles are really a special group, if you haven't bought that already. As Paul is going through his own ministry and a defense of the fact that he has the same authority as the other apostles and more authority than those who claim to be teachers of the Christians in the city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul asks this question. Am I not an apostle? And then he goes on to talk about how it is they know he's an apostle. And here's one of the criteria. Have I not seen the risen Lord? In order to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord. So it's another reason that none of you guys and I are apostles. And in fact, when in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles, the 11, gathered to replace Judas Iscariot, they gave the criteria for one that we're going to choose. And they say, it's going to have to be one who can be a witness of his resurrection. And who's been with us the whole time. And then they chose one who fit that criteria. So, bottom of page 2, though. When Peter equates the writings of Paul, the letters of Paul, with Scripture, just like the writings then of Isaiah, or David, or Moses in the first part of your Bible, he equates it without any council meeting or any of that. How can he do that? Here's how he can do that. Because the apostles have that authority. That's how. And Peter's an apostle, and Paul is an apostle, and therefore what he writes is has the authority of an apostle, a representative of God. It is scripture, the authoritative writings that have come from God. All right, page three. So why do we need a course on the Bible? And um, it's too late now. You're already in it. So we can just skip this part, okay? Uh, hey, it's we've got whatever number of people we have in here, 40 people or something. So then as the night wears on, and I drone on, then hot air is everywhere. We're doing our best with that little air conditioner over there. So do your best to stay awake for the next 20 minutes, okay? we got 20 minutes to go. And cooler weather is coming, okay? I mean, it's not as hot tonight as it was last week, and so it'll be cooler. Now, actually, that's not great news. It's great news in a way for us because we've got these lousy air conditioners, Okay? I mean, this old school does not have central air on the perimeter rooms. We, it had central air in the middle when we bought it. It still does. That's because that's where the principal's office was, okay? (laughs) But the kids can sweat it out. okay, apparently. That's the way it was in these old elementary schools. So one of these days we're going to get good air conditioning. That's the best we can do, especially for those of you over here. It's not getting you too well. Tom, you've got to be nice and cool over there, don't you? Yeah. Good choice of a seat, Tom. So stay with it as best you can, okay? Page three. Why do we need a course in the Bible? Because the Bible can be an intimidating book due in part to these two things, its size and its age. How big it is and how old it is. And those two things together, it's a big book and it's an old book, make the Bible intimidating for a lot of people. So how big is it? Well, the books of the Bible are 66, you see there. The Old Testament has 39. It was written over a period of about a thousand years. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, was written... In the mid-15th century B.C., 1450 B.C., Malachi, 450 B.C. That's why I said you know, there's about this 400-year period from the end of your Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament where there was nothing written. So the last one was written in about 450 B.C. And then in the New Testament, you have 27 books. They were written over a period of about 40 years from about A.D. 50 to A.D. 90. Now, AD 50. You know, the first book in the early 50s of the first century, but that's almost 20 years after Jesus has died and raised and gone to heaven. So do you see why the guys who wrote it would have to have perfect recall? Because the books were written nearly a generation, the first books were written uh, at that at that time. So It can be intimidating because of its size, 66 books, 39 and 27 in the Old and New Testament respectively. Then you've got the languages of the Bible, the Old Testament written in Hebrew. 99% of the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, was written in Hebrew. Why Hebrew? It was the language spoken by Israel. And as we do this survey, you'll see why Israel became so important. And then a small portion was written in a language called Aramaic. The language takes its name from the Arameans or the people of Aram. This is the land of Abraham's ancestors. It was called Mesopotamia by the Greeks. It was the universal language of the ancient world from the 8th century B.C. to the 4th century B.C., and Jews picked it up while in captivity. Now, we'll see this as we move forward in the survey, but there's this really important captivity that takes place in the year 586 B.C., And Jews are removed en masse from the land of Israel to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. And in Babylon, they spoke Aramaic. So the Jews pick up Aramaic and start speaking Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Now notice number three here. There are 268 verses in your Old Testament, only 268, that are written in Aramaic, but notice, mainly in the book of Daniel. Now, why Daniel? Because Daniel was written, if you remember, about Daniel's experiences in, of all things, captivity in Babylon. And so he has the most verses in the Old Testament that are written in the language of Babylon, Aramaic. And Aramaic was still spoken by Jews in the days of Jesus. So, when Jesus gives the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, remember the, the disciples' prayer. And I always throw in, it's not the Lord's prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. It's prayer a prayer for disciples. <laughs> It's not even a prayer that Jesus can even pray. So you really can't call it rightly the Lord's Prayer. The reason he can't pray it is because one of the six petitions in that is to forgive us our trespasses. And Jesus doesn't have any trespasses. To be forgiven. So this is not a prayer for him. It's a model prayer for us. But remember how it starts. Our, our Father. And... Most scholars believe that when Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Our Abba. Because that's the Aramaic word for Father. That's a very intimate term. And in fact, you find it used elsewhere than in the the New Testament. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 that talks about the fact that when we come to Christ and we have a relationship with God through him, we're adopted into God's family and he gives us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out Abba Father Because it's intimate, um, I've heard it often referred to as Daddy. Yeah, I've heard that too Julie was saying that, uh, so sometimes people will say it's it's more, you know not the more formal father right. but, but more informal like Daddy And uh, so that's that's one way to think of it. It's an intimate term for our relationship with God the Father. And then top of page four, the New Testament was written entirely in Greek. Why was it written in Greek? It was the universal language of the ancient world in the days of Jesus and the apostles. And that universality was a result of the conquests of Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C. Now, we will talk about Alexander the Great. And we'll talk about the fact that Daniel has this vision in uh, the book of Daniel, where he sees these four world empires, and the third of those four world empires is the Greek Empire that was established by Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great actually actually uh, factors in prominently into biblical history. We'll see that together as we as we move forward. But he established the Greek Empire. And, and Greek, common Greek, as the language of the empire. And so that was the language uh, that most people spoke in the days of Jesus and the apostles. So there's the age, and then there are these you know, old languages that the Bible's written in Hebrew and Greek. And then there is the size and diversity of the Bible. The Bible contains 1,189 chapters, in 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. The first of those books was written nearly 3,500 years ago and the last approximately 1,900 years ago. So you have got an old, big book. And because you've got an old, big book, people get scared about it. Like, how can I ever get my arms around this? How can I ever get my mind around this? And so we say here, as a result of all of this, the antiquity, the size, the diversity, the Bible can be intimidating. This course is designed to remove the intimidation by getting our arms around Scripture. Although the Bible is a big book, it's really about a handful of things. And if you get nothing else out of our several months together, if you will get this, it would be a marvelous thing. Yeah. that although the Bible is all the things we just said there and it is that old and it is that big and it is that diverse the Bible is not a fragmented book the Bible is not a little of what David said and a little of what Isaiah said and then some stuff that Peter threw in and John threw in and Paul threw in it's not that the Bible is a unified message and that unified message is And here's around three major themes, and I have them for you here. The Bible is about creation. (coughs) At creation, God gave Adam and Eve an orientation to his world. He showed and told them who he is and what he wanted from them. That's exactly how the Bible starts, isn't it? And if you come on Sunday mornings at all, you should be nodding your head because we're going through the book of Genesis. And that's exactly how it starts. The first two chapters, the opening chapters, are an introduction to God. In the beginning, God. And God is the creator. So the very first person that we're introduced to in the pages of the Bible is none other than God himself. And what... We are given by extension, but Adam and Eve were given very directly. Is an orientation. You know the reason I use the word orientation here is because we've got a like we've got a class here, four-week class that we do several times a year called a newcomers orientation. Next one will be the four Sundays in January. So if you've never taken the newcomers orientation, stick around till January. We'll be in this room. And I'll do four weeks going through a notebook of material in our newcomer's orientation. But why do we call it that? Because we're get, we're orienting you to who we are and what CBC is about and where we came from and what we believe and what we hope to do in the future. So when I use the word orientation here, I'm using it like that. Or like some of you parents had to go through. In the last week, yeah, you go to school and you get the orientation. So I had to go to senior orientation. Yikes, Annie's a senior. She's graduating this year. But I went to senior orientation. So what are they telling you? They're they're telling you in senior orientation what the senior year is all about. And all the stuff you can expect out of that. That's what God did in the opening two chapters of the Bible. It's about creation, but in creating... God gave an orientation to who he is and what he expects from those he created. That's what you get in the first two chapters. But the Bible is not only about creation and orientation to God's world, it is about the fall. Chapter 3 of Genesis, the entrance of sin creates disorientation. So we're supposed to be perfectly oriented to our world and to God and our relationship with Him and with one another and the environment in which He's placed us. But, as we've seen in our study of the book of Genesis, the entrance of sin brings disorientation and distortion to all of that. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the world in which we we live. So the entrance of sin creates disorientation between us God us and others and us us and the rest of creation. So what's the Bible about? Orientation. Disorientation. Okay, but you're only through 3 chapters. And you said there's 1189 of <laughs> these. Now, in the remaining 1186 chapters what you find is commentary Based upon the truth of creation and fall and, third bullet there, redemption. Like everything else you're going to read in the Bible is grounded, is founded upon the truth of the fact that God is the creator. We are the creature and he has told us why we're here and what he expects out of us. And it's all themed around the fact that we the creature have disobeyed God and have sinned and come into the world as sinners. And all of the effects that that has on us. Everything else you're going to read in the 1,186 chapters remaining is going to be based on that and telling us about the third thing. Redemption. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Because if it stops with creation here's what you were supposed to do and the fall here's what you really did then we're dead but the bible then tells us about redemption redemption is God making right what's gone wrong in his world it's God doing something about our plight, and doing it by reorientation of his creation to himself and to his purpose That's what you read about in the rest of the Bible. God reorienting us, his world, to the one who made it. And the story of the Bible is how he did that. It's how he's chosen to carry out this plan of making right what's going wrong because of the entrance of sin. So even though it's big in the 66 books and 1,189 chapters and a bunch of different authors and all of that, it is not just a piece of this and a piece of that. Everything hangs on that. It's about creation. It's about sin, the fall. And it's about what God's doing about it in redemption. So the Bible is about three things. What we read in the Bible can be further refined and summarized In one sentence. So in all the stuff you read in the Bible, here's your sentence. It's about people in situations before God. It's about people in different situations before God. Now, that's why you can be in a class like this in 2015. And we can talk about a book that was written, first book was written 3,500 years ago. And we can still have relevance for us today to what was written then. Here's why. Because if the Bible's about people in situations before God, think about it. Two of those three things, you got three things there people, you got situations, and you got God. And two of those three have not changed. People and God. God has not changed. The Bible is very clear that God is immutable. That means literally he cannot change. And unfortunately, people haven't changed. Every person, every person born is a son or daughter of Adam and is born with a sin nature. So we all come with the same nature. God's nature hasn't changed and our nature hasn't changed. So therefore, when you read about the situations of people in God, you're reading about yourself in there. And this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that God gave so many of those situations in the Bible. I I mean, really, why all of these stories about all of these boneheaded people doing all of this boneheaded stuff? Here's why. That book was written for boneheaded people. (laughs) Like you and me. Seriously. So as you look at them and you go, these people are nuts! These people are idiots. How can you possibly keep doing the same thing over and over again? You're out in the wilderness. God has brought you with a mighty hand out of Egypt and you're complaining and whining and rebelling and sinning. How could you do that? And I would just encourage you to ask that question in front of the mirror (laughs) tonight or tomorrow morning. Because that's exactly what you and I do. God with a mighty hand has rescued us in Jesus. So how can you continue to whine and complain and rebel? Well, here's how I know how you can do it. (laughs) Because that's what we do. That's what people do. And he's given us all these situations in which they do it. In fact, two-thirds of your Bible two-thirds of it is narrative. That is, you know, there's different kinds of books in the Bible, forty different authors, sixty-six books, and there are different kinds of books. Some of them are poetry, some of them are Jesus giving parables. Some of you guys are studying uh, in Bible study fellowship, the book of Revelation. That's a different kind of book. It's like an apocalyptic book, you know. So that's a different kind of book. But two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. And narrative is someone narrating what happened to a bunch of people. And that's what you find mostly in your Bible. You know, the, the Israelites come out of Egypt, they're in they wander for 40 years and here's what happened to them And their interactions with God This is all narration of what happened with these people And two-thirds of your Bible is that. Now why so much narration? Because God's given you all of these different situations And all of these stories So that you see yourself there And I see myself there So bottom of page 4 Although the circumstances in Bible times Are different from today Two things have not changed, God and people And God has provided enough situations that we can see ourselves in its pages as the one story that unfolds in its pages recounts how fallen people interact with the creator God and he redeems them. That's what we're going to see then. Starting next week, we will see a survey then of a timeline of the Bible. When did creation happen? Approximately. How old is the earth? When did it start? And then what happened in the unfolding of this one story that God is telling in the Bible, okay? So we'll start that next week. The good news for this class is there's no homework. So all you got to do is think about what we said today, show up next week, and you'll be good to go, all right? See you next week. Lord willing.